0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the network, and each week we scour the Internet looking for interesting new books, and we interview the authors of those books. And this week I'm very pleased to say we have John McGinnis on the show, and we'll be talking about his terrific book, Accelerating Democracy, Transforming Governance Through Technology. Uh, John, welcome to the show.
1: Well, thank you very much. Glad to be
0: here. Yeah, I really enjoyed reading your book. Uh, As we said in the pre interview, I have written a little bit on the history of communications, and this fits with many of the things that I thought about the way modern communications technologies uh, will probably change the way government does things and has already changed the way I think corporations have done things. But it's a good read. It's interesting for anyone interested in politics and political science and public policy, especially. I very much encourage people who work in those fields to go out and read the book. So, John, if you would, why don't you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself?
1: Oh Well, thank you so much for uh, doing this. Uh, I'm a professor of law at uh, Northwestern uh, University where I teach uh, courses in uh, constitutional law, international law, and some law and economics uh, courses. I'm in some sense a throwback to the old kind of law professor who uh, writes and thinks about a variety of things. Uh, rather than with a narrow uh, specialty. And uh, my background is I uh, have also worked in government. I worked in the <laughs> Re- Reagan administration and uh, and then the first uh, Bush administration. And uh, I've always been fascinated uh, by uh, politics and politics. Uh, uh, has been, in some sense, the, uh, uh, what has marked my life either working in it, and most of my writing has been about the intersection of uh, law and politics. And so that's been a, a great uh, focus of mine, and that's really what's uh, led
0: to writing uh, this book. Mm-hmm. Well, it's good that you have experience in government. I, did, I didn't know that. And uh, obviously, it's better to have a scholar practitioner than just a scholar. Uh, right,
1: yes, it opinion. is. It is. It is useful in, in that way. I think I come with a slightly different uh, uh, perspective on things because I've actually uh, uh, worked
0: in it and sort of seen actually the incoherence of government up close. <laughs> yes, the incoherence of government. Exactly. So, um, tell us why you wrote Accelerating Democracy.
1: Well, a few years ago, maybe uh, six or seven years ago, I read uh, the book, uh, The Singularity is Near by Ray Kurzweil. Yeah. This book, uh, I thought, was a fascinating book, which claimed uh, that uh, technology was moving faster and faster, and I thought there was a lot of truth in that, uh, because uh, the greatest um uh, phenomenon of our time, I think, is the uh, exponential increases in computation. Now, there are two possible critiques, I thought, of uh, Kurzweil's very interesting book and his his central idea of technological acceleration. One uh, was that he was just too optimistic that it was going to uh, continue, and he has this idea of the technological singularity, which is uh, a time when, essentially, computers uh, become as powerful as human thought and then we move even faster almost, uh, Uh, vertically uh, uh, with a vertical idea of progress maybe and he's very optimistic that's going to happen in his lifetime uh, so he can participate in it and I don't think it's quite so clear as he does uh, that it's going to happen by 20,040 so that's one possible critique but I don't think that's that important a critique uh, if you think that technological acceleration is going to happen that's still going to have huge effects on society if we don't reach uh, in our lifetime the technological singularity the other problem and the problem I thought really needed to be addressed was like many technologists Kurzweil is uh, uh, really innocent of politics that really what drives the world is simply uh, technology and he's very optimistic about it uh, and uh, because I don't think he focused on politics which is about the exertion of power of one human over other humans I don't think he takes seriously enough the downsides of technology in the way it may need to, we need to have new policies to deal with it. So there seems to be a tremendous opening uh, for someone both interested in technology and who accepts uh, that technology is really dramatically and transforming the world to think about the relation of politics and government and how are we going to have to change politics uh, to do this, uh, to, to make our governance better, to deal with the threats and the benefits of technology. And that was very interesting to me because, of course, in the context of uh, my teaching of constitutional law, I thought a great deal about how technology was essential uh, to the American experience, going right back to the Revolution, Tocqueville, uh, I think, famously says that the American Revolution is only possible because newspapers put the same idea into the minds of thousands and thousands of people at the same time, because we, we, we start to get a uh, uh, mass movement against uh, aristocrats, and in this case the tyranny of England, and it's partly a technological uh, phenomenon. So I don't think this is different in kind uh, from something I uh, have studied uh, very uh, intensely the American Revolution and the American founding and the techno- technology's relation to it. On the other hand, I think it's a very urgent policy problem today. So it's not only an intellectual problem, it's an urgent uh, problem, because I think uh, anyone who looks at the world thinks that there are large threats to technology, and how is our government going to be smarter and faster Uh, to be able to deal with them. And that's the problem uh, this book set itself to solve. Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm. I like that setup because it is historically informed. I mean, this is not, in a sense, a new challenge for governance because there have been various uh, communications uh, complexes prior to this. Obviously, there are other media. I mean, we begin with speech, and then we have writing, and then we have print. And then we have various sorts of AV media, you know, television campaigns and things like this. And the Internet sort of combines them all and speeds them up. Uh, and together with the incredible computational power of computers, we can gather information and crunch it in various new ways. But I don't think, as you say, people have really thought about what uh, the advances in computation and uh, and uh, I guess uh, wired communication are, are, are going to do, and I don't think we really know uh, yet exactly what they will do. So I, I found it a kind of a refreshing take on this. It's not exactly a new problem; it's happening faster. But that's it's not right. A new problem. Yeah.
1: It's it's the same. It's the same problem, except in some sense on steroids. Yes, right. It's exactly, just yeah. moving, and that means uh, there may be. Less, um, less, uh, room for error. And I, uh, in some sense, to jump to the end of the book, and then I'll m- maybe motivate, uh, talk a little about technology. I, I was very haunted in some sense, uh, by there's a famous, uh, Enrico Fermi, the famous, uh, Italian physicist, has something called the Fermi Paradox. And he asks at one point, well, where are they? And what does he mean? Well, he asks, well, where is the other kind of life that extraterrestrial life ha- that hasn't visited us? Uh, and, uh, because if we've been going on for billions of years, there's no reason to believe that, uh, we're special or unique in the universe, and there'll be civilizations that are much more advanced, uh, than ours. And that's a haunting question. And one answer to the Fermi paradox, which I think is, uh, not an implausible one, is that, uh, te- civilizations necessarily go through this kind of technological Uh, acceleration because they gather knowledge and so they move faster. The difficulty is that uh, their culture then, their technological culture, gets ahead of their ability to solve the problems it creates systematically, and that means those civilizations uh, tend to destroy themselves and so that 's a really cosmic problem uh, that uh, fermi uh, may paradox may may underscore, and uh, so it may show the the real stakes. Uh, that we face in restructuring politics uh, to avoid some real dangers, new kinds of weapons of mass destruction, real instability uh, created by um, uh, machines that displace uh, uh, employees, things uh, that uh, uh, that we really face uh, today, and that I think we actually see in the news that one real problem is that some of these Uh, difficulties of uh, technological acceleration are happening in a world where some uh, societies have not even gone through in some sense the cultural change of the industrial revolution some of the Arab uh, societies uh, and I think that makes for a very combustible combination this uh, uh, advanced uh, technology with these uh, some sense pre-industrial societies and how we're going to address those uh, problems seem to me questions certainly of the life of death of many people uh, but i think at this cosmic level maybe even the life and death of uh, civilization and so that's what i really uh, try why i find this problem so urgent and not simply uh, uh, a problem of simply of academic inquiry
0: although it certainly is the latter as well mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so let's uh i guess set one premise and that is we're talking about democracy here we want to have a thriving democracy that is government of the people by the people and for the people we want government to serve us and help us achieve our individual interests and our collective interests better than we have in the past not worse right we don't want the fermi uh result we want a better result now um how in general and you can talk about specific technologies here uh, should we engage these new technologies in such a way that we further that goal?
1: Okay, well, I'd like to begin before talking about some specific technologies, uh, and I do talk a lot about specific technologies in the book and make it very concrete, is to sort of deal with what I think is the problem. For uh, democracy and how then te- these technologies can help it, one po- one essential focus of mine on democracy. There are a lot of things that democracy helps us with. One is it simply gathers people's preferences. Some people. Uh, are for more uh, redistribution than other people. Some people are for more liberty than other people. So that's one focus, simply counting up people's preferences. That's an important function, and uh, I think uh, technology can help us better with better ways of actually voting uh, to do that. But that's really not the subject of the book, because I think that's essentially a relatively straightforward uh, problem of trying to capture people's preferences. But democracy has another function that goes back to, again, to the Greeks. Uh, Pericles says one of the great advantages of democracy, when he's talking to how Athens' uh, democracy worked, is we actually deliberate on our problems and think about what our policies going to accomplish before we actually... Uh, uh, vote the policy in and so we avoid some of the worst mistakes that's an aspect of democracy which i would call the instrumental aspect of democracy the deliberative uh, reasoning and that's a complex element because that isn't only happening within with uh with uh, individual voters at the polls. In that sense, democracy is about experts thinking what this policy going to do, rulers thinking about what the policy is going to do. And my book is really talking about how technology is going to uh, improve that, improve that by allowing us to get better information, information that's there for the taking. Uh, so that's one issue that it deals with in what I would call democratic theory. How do we improve the deliberative rationality of democracy? And there's another aspect of democracy that we intensely see uh, in the modern world, which is that Um, Democracy faces this problem, and we, we, we observe it all the time, that special interest groups that are very focused on their own kind of interest like public sector unions or trade associations often win out Over the public interest, what would I consider issues for the public interest? Better economic growth, better social stability, all of these more diffuse interests. The difficulty for those diffuse interests is that while they help everyone a little, Uh, People uh, uh, don't really have much incentive to organize in their favor. On the other hand, uh, trade unions or trade associations, they're going to be helped a lot by policies, and they have mechanisms uh, to force their members uh, to contribute, they're going to be more effective in politics, and that's a huge problem in politics. The problem that goes back uh, essentially to the beginning of democracy. Democracy, in some sense, uh, begins when uh, some pe- some ordinary people are able to realize their diffuse interests against uh, the aristocrats and rulers, who are then the big special interests in society. And my argument here is that just as to go back to uh, those aristocrats and rulers at that time, just as the printing press helped us rebalance uh, the relation between special interests and more diffuse interests that, that allow the, uh, uh, ordinary, the middle class to constrain their rulers. So today, our even better technology helps these diffuse interests, um, better discover and organize against special interests. And, and one particular way it does is it just allows them to energize them because we'll have a better sense of, of how, A particular policy is going to deliver something like economic growth or, or better schools because we'll have better data about that and because we have better data about that, if people become more secure in what they think the policy is going to be, they're more likely to, uh, to organize and to band together around it. And so it's just not that, uh, technology is better because it allows us to elicit this information. It's better because it allows us actually to practically uh, organize around that information for better results. And so that's, even before we get to the specific technologies that allow us to do that, and I think those are very interesting indeed, in general, by reducing the cost of information, the argument is that systematically helps these diffuse groups against special interests because special interests are always able uh, to spend more uh, to organize better and even if there are a lot of information barriers to them they're going to be in a better position to surmount it because so that's so that's the first what i would call political theory premise of the book before i talk about things like prediction markets uh, uh big data Uh, and other uh, forms of – and then the Internet, other forms of new
0: technology that help us gather that information. And I'd be happy to go on and chat a bit about those. Mm -hmm. I was just interested, what what are some examples of these uh, – I don't know if this is an appropriate question, but – or if you're prepared to answer – of some of these diffuse interests that are currently not achieving – I'm reminded of uh, Albert – the oh, well, you know, they're not receiving voice today. They're not. They don't. Yeah, they're not heard. Yes, I think that one of the great interests is
1: uh, is in education. There's no doubt, and it goes back to our problem of technological acceleration. We need much more effective education, increasing people's. A human capital, to move people to learn a lot more about science and to have more effective schools. That's just in everyone's uh, interests uh, because otherwise people will be charges on uh, society. I mean, that's just a classic education of the next generation is a diffuse interest. On the other hand, uh, there are some very special interests in that and that I think are uh, in particular uh, teachers' unions. I don't want to mm-hmm. say sure, that those absolutely. are the only kind of interest, but there's a lot of evidence uh, that the teachers' unions are interested not surprisingly in the perquisites of their members and not in uh, the uh, education of children. Of course, they'll claim to be interested in the education of children, but that's something of a mask. And so that's a real question about how we're going to constrain those special interests who often have the force of law behind them, they and uh, they're able to check off union dues, and so they're rather powerful interests. How are we going to do that? Well, there's been a big movement to reform uh, schools, and part of that is using, uh, and we already are starting to see that, putting evaluations of teachers uh, on the, uh, the, uh, the uh, internet, things of that sort, but more generally, uh, I think that this problem of education is becoming better understood uh, because of these uh, uh, new technologies are making clearer uh, that the United States is not doing so well compared to other uh, nations, and I think it's really led to a reform uh, movement. And one measure of that is, as a matter of fact, the teachers' unions are tremendously powerful within the Democratic uh, Party. I think some uh, 20% or less than that <laughs> of delegates to the convention, I think, are often connected to uh, teachers' unions. Very powerful. And yet, I think because of the sense that uh, these unions are not always interested in the uh, education of children primarily the Democratic Party itself is sort of distancing itself Well, one area where the Obama administration I think has least changed uh, policy compared to the Bush administration is education policy there's a tremendous continuity there because I think the center of the um, uh, Democratic uh, uh, Party or the center of, uh, of political discourse I think is now focused much more on this problem, and so in a variety of ways, I think uh, the uh, better uh, circulation of information has made people understand that, and then in practical ways, uh, by allowing uh, greater transparency, has I think made it harder uh, for unions to use the opaqueness no, no, don't, don't, uh, of not being able to understand what's causing the uh, results uh, here. Uh, to avoid reform. And so that would be, I think, an excellent example. And I think this is going to be continuing. I mean, it's not not just, a, again, one, um, a one-off uh, change. It's going to dramatically uh, uh, continue in the future with a variety of experiments in education, and then we're going to be in a better position to measure what works and what doesn't work in particular uh, situations. And that's going to be publicized and it's going to make it harder for unions to resist um, uh, merit pay if that
0: turns out to be a useful way to improve results or other kinds of experiments. Mm -hmm. Before we go into experiments, and I do want to talk about that, let me ask this question, which is a follow-up. How was it the case that technology helped this diffuse interest that is the one that says our children really aren't being educated as they should be? How did it help it come to the fore and actually give it Political teeth, that is to say, get people elected or not how what what exactly how did technology do this
1: well, I think the technology did this uh, in 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 several ways one it, it just allowed uh, 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 the uh, information about um, uh, our relatively poor performance uh, to uh, be better understood by people to be better understood by uh, experts and to become a uh, a motivating um, uh, a motivating factor in in politics i mean it takes a while for that to happen as you pointed out one thing modern information technology does it tends to speed things up uh there was a report i believe in 1986 on education in crisis it took a, a ra- relatively long time uh for this to sort of penetrate uh politics uh but over time it allowed uh Uh, uh, the, uh, the publicity given to this to allow sort of political entrepreneurs and local governments, uh, to run on this issue. And then, uh, they had tools to address some of the opaqueness. Well, is this school doing better than other schools? Which was sort of opaque in a world where, um, things could not be as easily measured as they can today, and that again brought things to the fore to the fore because once you start to be able to measure uh, individual school uh, results and compare them uh, and uh, that that uh, uh, gave again an impetus to diffuse interest because then you could move from well, we have a general problem here to trying to point out specific aspects of that problem, and that became then a platform for um, uh, for uh, possible uh, um,
0: experiments as uh, possible policies uh, to address them. Mm-hmm. And so to become even more granular, what we 're talking about here are um, modes of dissemination on the internet, usually things like blogs, that is the ability to copy and then disseminate information among extraordinarily large groups of people at very low cost. So, for example, this 1986 report prior to the internet, hard to get it out. but if such a report came out tomorrow, you would have it available to you, and presumably it would spread through networks, perhaps surrounded by blogs or some other um, less organized interest, other than a teacher's union, to people who uh, have this.
1: um You got it exactly right. I mean, uh, what happens is that there are now expert blogs in all sorts of areas that then become uh, sort of rivulets to feed into the major media. One thing is I don't think people all completely appreciate is how much uh, more informed our modern media is and, and that's because uh, journalists who are generalists uh, have much greater access to uh, information because you could on any particular topic there are real experts out there blogging about it mm-hmm. and uh, that's uh, that's a tremendous uh, focus uh, uh, and, and that's allied with uh, just the ab- greater ability to get information uh, but then it's also to distribute it so I think you're absolutely accurate that that that's uh, that's a process. One thing you have to think of, of is that this new technology is always reorienting our uh, press into a more powerful, uh, our our our, our uh, the the our media into a more powerful and, as you would put it, more more granular. Uh, of a more granular ability to focus on problems, and then it's it 's when of course the, the generality of the press, New York Times and other uh major media haven 't disappeared, and that 's important because then it becomes a process of triage. What are the most important uh problems and that 's also uh, an important focus of the press, to focus on the most important p- problems, but then uh, they're able to do that in a much more informed way uh, because of the rise of blogs and what we might call more generally dis- intermediate media uh, that actually are much closer to the particular
0: problems and address them with a great deal of uh, expertise. Mm-hmm. And in a sense, what we're doing right here is a contribution to just that effort, because we're taking information that, well, I sometimes say editorially is trapped in books, uh, because, you know, how many people are going to read this book by Princeton University Press? I hope a million. I really do. But we're helping disseminate it in a different uh, medium and by the Internet. So this interview, I can tell you, will be available in a, you know, probably an hour to millions and millions of people all over the world, and they can listen to you talk about this.
1: Right. That's exactly exactly right. Uh, that's uh, been a, a tremendous uh, advantage. And of course, it's it's not conceivable that this would have happened no. uh,
0: even a decade, 15 years ago. No. Uh, it's about the lower price of information. Uh, right, right. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, in the long, long term, it's the cost of dissemination of information, the copying, dissemination of information has just basically gone through the floor. So that someone like me, a kind of mid-level academic, uh, you know, with a modest salary, I run the whole thing myself. I pay for it. It doesn't cost very much. And I engage all these volunteers, most of whom I have to say I have never met in person. In fact, I'm trying to think how many of them I've met in person. We have about 100 hosts. I maybe have met four or five of them in person. And so you know this is a large distributed effort to get the word out about what people like you do. That is to transfer expertise from experts to people that might be interested in it. So I think this is a good example of just what you're talking about. So let's go on. Now that we have this Um, this sort of diffused interest that has has come to light and started to boil among the democratic populace. You talked about experiments. How does that work into the equation?
1: Well, one of the new ways that um, uh, uh, information works is it allows people actually to measure results better than they did. Always as part of what I would call the march of civilization, there's been measurement at its core, trying to figure out how are we going to you know, measure anything from the circumference of the world, but how are we going to measure the results of policy. And uh, that's a whole part of political science, generally called empiricism, and people have always been enthusiastic about that, but the difficulty is that it was very hard to gather enough data uh and to evaluate uh, uh evaluate it but that's of course a uh, function of the huge rise in computational power big data has come it's uh, now a buzzword that uh, there's all I, uh, the the results of things can be reduced to numbers and they don't even have to be exact numbers because we have so much uh, uh data in the world uh to uh then allow people to say well What's actually going to be the results of, let's take an example, merit pay? Does that actually help with um, uh, merit pay, which is paying teachers uh, more depending on the results uh, that their students get in the classroom? Is that actually going to uh, increase uh, educational uh, performance? There's a debate about that. But then we have the advantage of, say, looking at some school districts that uh, introduce merit pay and look at school districts that don't introduce merit pay and compare them and make some effort to figure out, well, is this a good policy in a very systematic way? Now, there are complications in that. Let me just t- talk about two ways of uh, trying to uh, evaluate these results. One is, you might have um, uh, one school district in Mississippi, or some school districts in Mississippi, others in, uh, in Massachusetts introducing merit pay, and schools, districts, and some other uh, districts not introducing merit pay. One difficulty there is, of course, these school districts differ in other respects, and so how are you going to make this uh, comparison? Well, another thing that's happened is but precisely because we've had all this data, empiricists have found a variety of methods to correct for the other differences and to come to some evaluation often, even despite those uh, other differences of what merit pay or, or or the policy is doing. So that's one way uh, that we're able to uh, better evaluate some experiment like that. Another thing that I recommend in my book is that sometimes government should simply randomize policy. In other words, it should assign people or assign school districts uh, to different um, uh, policies, uh, and then measure the results at uh, measure the results and if these are done randomly, uh, then we really don't have the problem, or we don't have as much of a problem of having to control for these differences, that there may be great differences if, if the if the assignment of some policy is random. And so I think that's another way that suddenly comes to the fore uh in the modern time and we've done we've done some random experiments generally with welfare uh, payments and uh, what requirements we uh impose on welfare recipients on on un- un- recipients of unemployment benefits but i think that should be done much more uh generally i mean this can not always be done and sometimes there could be ethical uh issues with it but in my book i argue that in general it's really not an ethical problem because the government, when it introduces a new policy, is always in some sense experimenting and using <laughs> its citizens as guinea pigs, as it were, because the policy may not work. And having a randomized policy in certain areas where it might actually uh, give us a better sense of what policy is working actually suggests that in the future, at least, people are going to be better. Uh, treated, better treated in the sense they're going to have policies that are more likely uh, to work. So those are some of the ways we're going to use, uh, uh, we could use uh, big data and um, uh, 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 other mechanisms to better test policies. See, one other point about that, uh, that... Precisely because it's good to have experiments, uh, one of the arguments in the book is that decentralization and things like federalism, allowing uh, localities to go their own way, uh, is often very useful in the modern world because for a long time, uh, federalism, the idea that states can have some autonomy in policy, has been popular because of its ability to try things out. But it's all, it's all better now because we actually can better measure uh, the results of those policies than ever before, so federalism and decentralization actually become more attractive uh, uh, than they were before, and I argue in this book that that suggests we should the Supreme Court should be more sympathetic uh, to federalism uh, in its rulings, that the Congress should have uh, institutions to make sure it doesn 't nationalize a policy when we could really get some better information from having people from different states uh, go different ways and then measure the results. And this isn't, this isn't novel in this sense, the Congress, with educational reform, has been very focused on um, uh, having, indeed, a whole agency, which is trying to measure the different results
0: uh, from different states. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You have reminded me a little bit of a book I read as an undergraduate called Anarchy, State, and Utopia by Robert Nozick, in which he takes this notion of Laboratory of democracy to to a real extreme, and so all the states are decentralizing. They're planning different things and borrowing from one another. Um, one uh, example that comes to mind, and we could perhaps do a before and after here, is that um, I'm, I'm thinking of the uh, the what is now the sort of standard American welfare policy, which is called Workfare and the Earned Income Credit. It started as an initiative, I think, in Minnesota in the 80s, early 80s. And then it was sort of grasped by the Clinton administration and shown as a a model. And then slowly over the 90s and even early 2000s, it became a kind of general take on how welfare should be, Distributed, that is to get people into low paying jobs and give them income credits so they basically didn't pay any taxes. So, how would that be different today? It took a long time to work through the system, and now again, I think it's more or less standard in American welfare.
1: Right. I mean, I think the one way is to, uh, for two things to happen one is to, um, um, uh, uh, that things happen much faster. But then I think one has to be cautious precisely because things can change very quickly. In other words, the world changes. It doesn't mean that because a policy worked in one context, it's necessarily going to work in another context. And I think that suggests there are even dangers to nationalizing policy once we think the policy is generally working rather than allow – political entrepreneurs in different states maybe to change the policy, then we'll see, well, maybe this, we've got a policy that's going to work a little better, and work a little better, particularly in the changing conditions. Because remember that precisely because of technological acceleration, the world changes, and it just doesn't follow that a policy that was great 50 years ago is going to work today. And so that's... Uh, One other point, it suggests that we're going to have the ability to continually measure things, which is essential because I think it's going to be the case that policies may be less stable over time because the world is changing faster. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we have some one other mechanism for for doing that, and because and uh, this one maybe I'd like to take a bit of time on, which because I talk about in the book called prediction markets. Yeah, sure, go ahead. And prediction markets, because one of course problem with testing policies is they're always necessarily backwards looking. You're looking at what happened in the past. Of course, what we're interested really in a democracy is we're looking to the future. What's going to do well, do well in the future? I mean, this can go back to Kierkegaard, who always said, you know, life is understood backwards, but it's lived forwards, and democracy, in some sense, is lived forwards. And so how are we going to use all of this information? To better project the results of policy in the future, and I talk a lot in the book about something called prediction markets. Let me explain a bit of what prediction markets are, and then show how they might help us with policy. I think many of your listeners probably would have heard started to hear of prediction markets in this last election. They start really to break into the mainstream media. What prediction markets were in the last election were an attempt uh, our our markets which were betting on the results. Was the president going to win, or was Governor Romney going to win? And, of course, we get a lot of polls about that, but the polls are only a snapshot, and they can change. A market actually takes the information of polls and forces citizens who want to bet, essentially, who want to buy shares in a candidate, to put their money where their mouth is, And it turned out that these uh, prediction markets were again, and this is, they've been going on for some time, were more accurate than the polls. In other words, they better predicted the vote shares of the candidates, which you actually could Vote, uh, uh, predict not uh, uh, that not only on who was going to win, but what their vote share was going to be. They were more accurate even than the consensus of the polls on the day before the election. That's pretty dramatic, and it shows the wisdom of crowds uh, when um, uh, you actually have to bet to uh, participate. So that's tremendously uh, powerful, and we I think we have theoretical reasons. It's not only empirically; it seems powerful theoretical reasons to believe this is a way of gathering the information that's in the world, and um, that's uh, uh, what these markets uh, can do. Well, markets then can be used to predict the results of policy uh, as well. For instance, we could have what are known as conditional markets, markets that are conditional on a policy having... um, uh, it being implemented and conditional on a policy not being implemented. For instance, let's take an example. Let's say uh, we now, um, uh, the president was able to um, persuade people that there was uh, we should have another huge stimulus package. Well, we could have a market conditional on that uh, being put into effect and conditional on it's not being put into effect, sort of two markets in this sense, and we could... That on, well, what's economic growth going to be? What's unemployment going to be? Uh, And that will give us information about these policies even before they're implemented. Now, it won't tell us exactly what's going to happen. It really is going to be a prediction, a kind of probability of what's going to happen. But that's better, I think, than what we have now. Or Let me put it in another way. In Washington now we have a spin city where of course everyone on K street is attempting to say well this policy is going to be great for the public of course the reason they're saying it is not because it's going to be good for the public but it's going to be good for their particular clients uh but what I um A prediction market does is creates an army of people who are interested in accuracy, right? These people are not going to be paid off unless their prediction is an accurate one, and so that's very powerful. Uh, in politics, we have an army of people interested in accuracy against the special interest and in spin doctor- doctors. We're going to again improve this aspect of democracy, the aspect of demo- the instrumental aspect. What's likely to happen from our policies, and that's crucial because a lot of our political debates—I don't want to say all our political debates—have that form. People want economic growth. They want to reduce unemployment. They want better results in schools. There are very few people who are opposed to that. A lot of our debates are about the means of that, or at least overtly about the means that maybe there are interest groups that actually are not interested in these diffuse results, but even they have to argue in that framework. It's not possible for people to say, I'm interested just in my small interest. They they they, they, they frame things in the in the general interest. And it's important to have, again, to energize um, diffuse interests. And one way of doing that is to give people an incentive uh, to bet on uh, predicting the results of things like economic growth or better uh, education for children. So that's an important possibility. Unfortunately, our laws, uh, for reasons... Um, I think are too complicated to go into, essentially make it illegal <laughs> for these markets to operate in the United States. And so uh, only uh, there have only been two markets, one operating out of Ireland that has since gone defunct, and then a very small market that is specially protected and run out of the, uh, the University of Iowa uh, that's run under license from the government. Uh, but that only focuses on on elections. And what I think is we at least need to legalize these markets. Indeed, if they're very beneficial, we might even want to consider subsidizing them and at least experiment with these markets, which seem to me a tremendously uh, powerful tool, again, that's made possible by technology, made possible by the Internet uh, and the ease with which people can um, uh, could bet. And then have these the results of their uh, their thinking displayed on the internet, and in turn affect uh, the way people uh, behave uh, in in real politics.
0: Mm-hmm. I know that the regulations in the United Kingdom are much more relaxed in that way. They vote on I mean they they bet on pretty much everything there. Um, I, d- I studied the, the prediction markets just a little bit, and uh, I know that you can you really can can you can you can place a bet on almost any political activity in in the UK. So essentially what these things do is they ask for other people's they ask for people's input. They said do you think this is going to work or not? And to what extent do you think it's going to work?
1: Right and they put a and, and you of course you have an incentive to get it right, right. because you're only paid
0: off if you're uh, if you are right. Right you put your money where your mouth is as you put it I think. Yes. Yeah, and they have been proven somewhat successfully. I think that's absolutely true. So uh, I understand now how these diffuse interests come to light. That is, people, uh, they basically exchange information in this way. And then we could experiment with various alternatives and perhaps even predict the result of these experiments using prediction markets. You also talk a little bit about um, artificial intelligence. How does that play into it?
1: Well this has uh uh become more interesting even since I've published since I wrote the book not since I published it uh, is that artificial intelligence because of President Obama's brain science initiative which I'll explain I think it, it's connection in a moment artificial intelligence of course is uh the ability of um, of uh mechanisms of uh of, of computation uh, to replicate, ultimately, the human mind and become more powerful than the human mind. And already, artificial intelligence is more powerful than the human mind in certain areas. Ch- chess playing, of course. <laughs> but m- most uh, imp- importantly and impressively is, of course, uh, in 2012, Watson, a computer created by IBM, won at jeopardy it beat the best players in the world at jeopardy and so this doesn't seem that na- at least watson doesn't seem to be this completely formal system jeopardy as i'm sure your listeners know is a quest is really a general knowledge test that requires disentangling puns and all sorts of things and it did that by having tremendously powerful algorithms that worked uh, in sequence and together And uh, that uh, seems to me to be a real change in kind from programs that win at chess. Because what essentially these programs are doing is they're doing hypothesis testing. Well, what is they're making predictions. What is uh, the answer to this going to be? You actually saw uh, Watson thinking and and saying that uh, this is the most likely answer. Well, artificial intelligence has important... Um, uh, advantages for our uh, politics because some issues are going to be very hard to figure out what is what is actually a uh, hypothesis, what is this is, is, is there global warming, what's going to be uh, the effects of it uh, it's actually the case uh, I think uh, experts in AI suggest that uh, these um, uh, uh, computers are going to be able to gather uh, data and actually even suggest hypotheses by t- 2020. Hypotheses that humans might not be able to come up with about what's going to be, uh, the result of some, uh, policy, what's going to be, uh, the effect of some kind of, um, uh, new product we introduce. We might, in other words, not be able to think through all of the possibilities and AI is going to be able to help us, uh, Uh, Think some of these through. So one way to think about AI is one of the dangers of accelerating uh, technology is that there'll be all sorts of new technologies that could create risks. Uh, for us. AI may itself create risks, and I talk about that in the book, but unlike other technologies like biotechnology and things of that sort, AI is a technology that helps us evaluate the risks as well. And that's why it's uh, I think the most important uh, technology actually for democracy because one can think of this as an assistant, assistant in some sense uh, to the this deliberative rationality aspect of democracy, what's going to be the effect? This predictive aspect of democracy—it's uh, the most important tool for that, and that's why I think the government should be very enthusiastic about uh, subsidizing that. And that's where I think think President Obama's brain science initiative comes, because there's always a close connection between work in uh, uh, looking at our own brains and advances in uh, artificial. Uh, Intelligence. There's a connection there, and besides the advantages of neuro uh, against this research, may lead to more uh, help with neurodegenerative uh, diseases, which are a huge problem like Alzheimer's uh, in society. It has this important political aspect as well. As if it if it if it uh, propels uh, AI, uh, that's actually a, a help for us to deal with technological change because that is the best technology. Uh, To deal with the the, the problem of technological change itself and so uh, I I think one should be very enthusiastic for President Obama's brain science initiative for that reason as well as some of the
0: more medically oriented reasons uh, that have been uh, discussed Mm -hmm. So we just have a few minutes left and I wanted to, you mentioned dangers and I wanted to turn to the headlines a little bit. Uh, One of the ways we know the government has been using the new information technology is to You have to be careful about what word you use here. I'll use the word spy on us. Um, How should the regulatory environment change in order to facilitate the positive sorts of changes that you're talking about, the improvements and ward off what I think are probably, um, I I don't know whether they're harmful or not, but the, the ones that scare people, the uses of information technology that scare people.
1: Right. I think that's an excellent question. Something I don't actually uh, address at length in the book, but here are some of the thoughts I have about that. I think in general, one of the themes of the book is that we have to think of ways of using technology to solve the problems that technology has created. And uh, I don't think it's the case uh, uh, that as many people in the press seem to think that technology is simply a threat. To our <laughs> privacy, uh, because uh, 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 and I think that some of these issues I and mean, well, why is why why is the government doing this? Well, some of it has to do with this combustible mixture mixture I've noted of the danger of uh, pre-industrial societies using very advanced weapons of mass destruction against the United States, uh, against other people. Uh, that's the reason for this, uh, and again, we've seen a continuity here between President Bush and president obama's uh, policies. I think because they both uh, see some of these um, uh, uh, dangers. Well how can we deal with uh, with uh, using this information to uh, give us advance warning to try to find uh, often very difficult matter uh, uh, terrorists who obviously are trying to uh, not disclose. Uh, their presence. Well, one way of thinking about how technology may help us with that is uh, that uh, technology itself may um, be things that will sort of uh, be able to evaluate who we should look at without any human intervention. And that strikes me as, um, as uh, uh, or at least without, without initial human intervention, that strikes me as something of a safeguard against privacy violations. In other words, if it's some machine and algorithms that's looking at all of this information at least I wouldn't feel (laughs) my privacy is as violated as if actual humans were going through them and we could have some structure in which uh, I think we should have structures in which uh, humans will only be able to uh, look at uh, things about me Uh, perhaps if machines have suggested there's a high probability uh, that there's some danger here and I think that's that 's the way our constitution here i of course I am a constitutional law lawyer our, our general requirement uh in the Constitution is we're, we, we we're against unreasonable searches and seizures, and that is that is a balance of liberty against uh, security and privacy on the other hand, and I think one way of thinking about technology is that sometimes it allows us to make a better trade off because it allows us for instance in this case uh, to uh, make use of machines to make the first initial cut, and that's, I think, less harmful to privacy. So That's one way I think is very really consistent with the themes of the book is that technology allows us solutions to the tech, the problems that technology uh, creates. And we have to think about those creatively rather than just uh, engage in a kind of alarmism uh, that technology is uh, is ending some important part of civilization like privacy. I think it generally offers solutions that are
0: consonant with our values uh, but that allow us to deal with the new uh, kinds of threats. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see just what you mean. And another relevant case and one that comes to mind here is the uh, IRS picking what are essentially certain keywords to search in a massive database in order to target – target maybe the wrong word – identify probabilistically certain groups that are likely to abuse the tax code, in this case, 501c3s. Uh, that was a perfectly reasonable thing to do in terms of their brief. This is what they do. And I think I don't think they were wrong in targeting uh, certain small political groups that might abuse those things. On the other hand, it certainly looks suspicious, and I think it's that we have to overcome. Is that
1: well, right? The it looks suspicious. suspicious in the sense that it might have, if there is some structure. In fact, there's some program which has no political condition, um, In other words, uh, no, no, nothing uh, itself that suggests that. Um, uh that we're going after one political group mm-hmm. or another yeah. but that it simply targets certain groups because in the past these things have been associated with uh violations yes. and these words have that itself may give us some security that it's actually not a um not a uh not a, a political decision, although notice that this may require people who are quite experts uh in algorithms and things to be able to evaluate those uh algorithms make sure that actually people haven't <laughs> politicians or bureaucrats haven't inserted some things that do try to uh to harm the neutrality so it doesn't mean that we're not going to have human uh, judgment uh, that's going to be uh, applied uh, but that it does suggest that at least once that judgment is applied we may be able to structure even with the help of machines, neutral principles that give us some confidence that people are not being unfairly
0: targeted. Mm -hmm. Sure, sure, sure. Um, Again, we're about out of time, but I have a couple of general questions that I wanted to ask if it's okay. Um, One one is I'm always fascinated to talk to a constitutional lawyer because these are these these questions. I've read the Constitution. Uh, Does the Constitution, and this bears on this issue of uh, what sort of stuff that is out there that the government can look through, does it uh, give us a right to privacy?
1: Uh, it doesn't give us a right to privacy. Indeed, famously, uh, uh, that's the claim of uh, at least the original Constitution doesn't. The Constitution's right to privacy is generally actually right in Roe v. versus Wade to sexual autonomy. What it does in the area that we're talking about is it gives us a balance. It says there can be no unreasonable searches and seizures, and that... Is a standard in the Constitution quite unusual in the Constitution that actually suggests that there's going to have to be a balance struck between security and liberty on the one hand, and uh, sec- liberty on the one hand, and security and privacy on the other. So it certainly, in some sense, does not give us a right to privacy. It says that this is going to have to be
0: balanced in the public interest. It's okay. a standard. Yeah, not a rule. Yeah, I think that a lot of Americans think there is a right to privacy. Just full right. Step. Well, <laughs> right. right. Well, that's what it's all very, are... con-
1: very yeah. confusing because then, of course, the term "right to privacy" in American constitutional law has been used in the right to abortion is really something completely different from privacy, which is a right to sexual autonomy. I mean, we can talk. We could talk at some other time about whether that's in the Constitution, but that's not really what we're talking about, yeah. which is a right to keep one's information mm-hmm. private. Whatever a right to an abortion is, it's not actually a right. to to do something in private. It's, in right. some sense it's a medical procedure. So sure. it's just we, we have some very confusing words
0: I think have actually confused the issues for the public. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's right. Uh, here's another question for you What do you think of um, electronic voting?
1: I think electronic voting may in the uh may be a good idea i think uh I, this is not an area in which i 'm uh, an expert in uh, but I think one advantage of it is uh is if uh we actually all it was used to have us all vote at the same time was it would get it rid of the uh, problems of the difficulty of getting to the polls, which people have tried to deal with in another way, through having these uh, early voting. And I yeah. think that's a very bad idea, early voting, because it it means that there's not a rhythm to the political campaign. People haven't listened <laughs> uh, it goes back again to information to the entire campaign, uh, but before they voted. And that's that. therefore the, the vote in a less uh, informed way. and And so insofar as we can make voting easier, but actually all at the same time, so Everyone's had the full benefit of the campaign. I think that would be a tremendous advantage uh, to information, which is of course I think is is really the lifeblood of democracy.
0: Mm-hmm. What do you think of electronic straw polling? I know that you know you've sat in on department meetings and stuff, and in my departments we always do the straw polling before we do the real polling. <laughs> and actually it's a good way to reach consensus on issues. Have you ever, has anyone ever suggested this? You know, so that you know the mayor wants to put in a new sewer. Straw poll open today. Yeah, the problem there I think is it'd be very hard to keep people's attention in a democracy.
1: Yeah. As attention is a is a vanishing resource. Um as you know famously Oscar Wilde said the The problem with socialism is that it takes too many evenings. And so the problem with non-representative democracy is sort of the same thing, that we have too many votes. I think we'll see a very fast fall off in participation. Yeah,
0: Yeah, I like Margaret Thatcher on socialism a little bit better. She famously said that the problem with socialism is that eventually you run out of other people's money right well yeah, I'm, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. so anyway John I want to thank you so much for talking about your fascinating book today we've been talking with John McGinnis about accelerating democracy transforming governments through technology um, John let me ask our traditional final question before I say uh, goodbye and that is what are you working on now what is your uh, well next something very question?
1: different uh, coming out in the fall uh, is a book called originalism and the good constitution with Harvard University Press written with a friend of mine Mike Rappaport and there uh, sort of the uh, we defend the idea of the Constitution should be interpreted according to its original meaning, mm. and uh, we have some new arguments for that that actually put uh, the amendment process of the Constitution front and center. And I think that's a very vibrant area of constitutional uh, debate <laughs> to, to connect it. You might think these are very different kinds of books. I think there's a central issue in both of them, and that's the idea of how do we best gather information uh, and use that in politics, and our argument in brief in that book is that supermajority rules, the, the the complex procedure of getting a provision into the Constitution, is the best way to create a Constitution. It's much better than judges fabricating it because it actually gathers the information better. So there is a, a connection between what you might think are very Uh,
0: different uh, books but that's coming out uh, this fall well congratulations on that and I would like to have you on the show because you know as a historian this is sort of what we do for a living this is how we earn our bowl of rice trying to figure out what things meant you know back when oh I'd be delighted and I understand (laughs) I'll be delighted delighted to come back and talk about that Okay, good enough well as I say today we've been talking with John McGinnis about accelerating democracy transforming governments through technology Uh, I'm Marshall Poe the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network and I want to thank everyone for listening to this program But I especially want to thank John for being on. Thank you, John. Well, this has just been a delightful conversation. All right. Take care. Bye-bye.